Our scripture for today is found in John, the 12th chapter, beginning with the 12th verse. We'd like for you to find that, and then uh, we'll stand for the reading of the scripture. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Would you stand? On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he uh, called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing his witness. And for this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We come in John chapter 12 to the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the sounds of that week must have been uh, very much like what we have just heard sung as the Jews had come from all over the world to Passover. Uh, we do not know how many uh, people for sure were in Jerusalem that week, but we do know this. According to the uh, history of the time that has survived, they were under command as they observed Passover in Jerusalem during this time of the life of Jesus of Nazareth to have one lamb for every ten people, at least ten. They were commanded not to serve the lamb to less than ten, so there would be no waste. We also know that in the year that Christ presented himself, the history tells us that over 256,000 lambs were slain in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so this city already uh, quite crowded and busy and bustling as a crossroads of that part of the earth was swelled to the point that the population was two and a half to three million people for that one week. And early in the week, on this particular morning, word spread quickly that Jesus was leaving Bethany and coming to the city. There were two crowds. The one crowd was from Bethany that had no doubt stayed close to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus since Jesus had arrived there wanting to see him, wanting to see uh, Jesus. But word was spread quickly until uh, all the way to Jerusalem, two miles away, the crowds seemed to flow together like converging tides of the sea and they were excited and shouting praises, welcoming the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the city that was to be the place of his death. In the crowd, no doubt, there were many who were hostile to him. There were many who were 
sightseers who got to come to Jerusalem only rarely, who had never had the time to see him before. And there were many who were greeting their king as he came. Jesus had come to Jerusalem many times during his life and during the years of his ministry. We are told about several of them, but this time is different. This time he has come specifically to die. The rulers of the Jews are quite hostile. The crowd is fickled, and the emotions are running high. And it demonstrates itself in an outburst of praise. At first, it appeared, and it certainly must have seemed so to his disciples, that he would be welcomed with open arms and that he would be honored. But it was really just a little remnant of the people who acknowledged him for what he was and for who he was. It is reminiscent of the word of John spoken of the Lord Jesus earlier in this gospel that he knew what was in the heart of man and therefore he did not put himself into their hands so that his fate was in their hands. It was not long after the cries of Hosanna and blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It was not long before many cried, we have no king but Caesar, before others cried, let him be crucified, release Barabbas. And you should note this, that perhaps is often lost in our familiarity with the week of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You should note that he, though he was every bit God, he was every bit man, and nowhere in the recorded history of mankind is there an act of courage like this act. Going defenseless into the heart of the city that was thirsty for his blood. It was a courageous and loving act for all through the week he made a last appeal for them to repent and to come to him as Savior and Lord. Now we look this morning at John 12, verses 12 through 50, the joyous reception and the foreshadowing of the things that are to follow. In verses 12 through 19, which we have read together, here is the prince revealed. Now it is obvious that the crowd is excited. In fact, John gives us a little detail of the crowd, a little more information about the activity and the state of mind of the crowd than do the other Gospels. The crowd was excited. They were not going to listen to what he had to say that day. He could not be heard. There would be no way for him to speak. But he spoke volumes by an action that he took. He rode from Bethany into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey, on the back of a colt. It was a specific claim to be Messiah. For those among the Jews who cherished the hope of Messiah, 
we're well familiar with the prophecy in the book of Zechariah that the king would come to Jerusalem riding on a young colt. Now this was a claim to royalty. It was a claim to messiahship. But it was a repudiation of their expectation of Messiah that he would be a conquering warrior. Had he desired to send that signal, he would have ridden in proudly on a white horse as a conqueror. But he did not. He chose the donkey. The crowd was trying to get him to take over. They were trying to force on him accepting the role of military leader, believing that the one who possessed the power to raise Lazarus from the dead surely also had the power to defeat the Romans. So they recognized him as their great hope, but their hope was misplaced, for their hope was in temporal things. He came to provide eternal things. They scattered palm branches before him. Now in that day, in their art, and in their literature and in their public ceremonies, the palm branches were a symbol of Jewish independence. There, in a land ruled by the power of Rome, they were making a public statement by using the palm branches as definitely as flying a rebel flag. They were trying to force him into assuming power. And in the background, I think verse 19 is an interesting comment. In the background, the, the Pharisees were in despair. They said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. The whole world has gone after him. Here indeed is the prince revealed. But then notice in verses 20 through 26, of John 12. Here is the principle revealed. Certain among the Greek Jews who had come to pass over that day came to Philip. Now we do not know what the connection was, but the name Philip is a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. So perhaps his father or his mother uh, was a Greek. Perhaps he was known to some of these as uh, relations or uh, somehow friendship through the years, but they came to him seeking Jesus. And here we see foreshadowed the great fact that unlike the Jewish expectation, when Messiah came, the good news of his coming and the provision of salvation that he would make would not be for the Jews only, but that it would go to the whole world. It would go to all nations. These Greeks are representative of the believers of every nation who have come to him. Now they came to Philip. Philip didn't know what to do, but he consulted Andrew, and Andrew always did one thing when he didn't know what to do. He went straight to Jesus. And that is what he did along with these Jews who 
came to seek him. This occasion, when Philip came to him and Andrew, along with the Greeks, prompted Jesus to reveal a great and mighty principle that is absolutely essential to effectiveness as a Christian. Jesus says in verse 24 through 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus revealed the principle of his own work, that it was only through his death that he could receive his glory and that he could bring sinners to salvation. But he also tied it to our lives as Christians. He obviously is referring to himself. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He's referring to himself. But then he says, let the servant follow the master. That where I am, there the servant will be. And the one who honors me, the father will honor him. I am reluctant to admit it, but I will. As a young pastor, I once made the statement, it's got to be one of the dumbest statements anybody ever made. I remember saying to myself, Jesus has been to the cross, I'm not going. I was dead wrong. I thought that Jesus, in his act, had built some kind of a shield around me and I did not have to go through hard experiences of life. It's not true. In fact, it is never true. It is never true for anybody. And you do not have a choice as to whether or not you will be crushed and broken. You only have a choice as to how you respond. Where I am, let the servant follow me. And if we do not, then our effectiveness will be destroyed. This principle reveals the glory of Christ as the prism bends the beam of light to reveal the rainbow. This principle opened to his disciples a view of character qualities in Christ that could be revealed in no other way. It is so significant that though there have been many who were messengers from the Father, throughout the history revealed in the Bible, God sent individuals to speak his word 
and to tell his people the way to go and to preach truth. But when it became necessary for truth to come in its fullest expression, God himself clothed himself with flesh and he revealed by his sacrificial selfless death the principle that is the most important one for us to know. There are many who desire to be fruitful as Christians who have never learned the lesson of the cross, who try to hold on both to self and to the Lord, and it cannot be done. It was only a couple of days prior to this that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, had revealed the same principle in taking the hand-carved alabaster box of precious ointment and breaking it irretrievably so that its contents might be poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our flesh, in our humanity, we are not priceless as far as the value that we have, but we have that value because of his choice of us, because he died for us, and we too must be broken seemingly irretrievably if we're ever going to be effective and fruitful as Christians. The Lord Jesus is saying that death precedes life. That's backward from the way the world thinks. The world thinks that life precedes death. It's not true. Death precedes life. Jesus is saying that if you would retain your life, you must spend it freely in doing his will. And he is saying that only by selflessness comes greatness and achievement. A grain of wheat is safe and secure, but it is dead and barren until it is buried. And it cracks open and germinates and bears much fruit. You know, it, it is possible that we may last longer if we live lives on our own terms and for ourselves. History is certainly full of accounts of those who have been spent in the service of Christ, whose lives have been shorter, who gloriously honored him by giving their lives. And you might last longer on this earth if you live for yourself. But you will be barren and empty and fruitless. Notice thirdly, in verses 27 through 36, here is the purpose revealed. Throughout John's gospel, we have had the cryptic statement, his hour had not yet come. And now Jesus speaks. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The promise is light. The threat is do not wait for a better moment, but obey when the moment comes. All of those who followed Jesus knew that a crisis was coming. The Pharisees and the chief priests knew that a crisis was coming, but only the Lord Jesus Christ saw the crisis in its real terms. Everything that God has done for us is by His grace. Everything that He does, period, is for His glory. And often in life we are inundated by the pain, we are perplexed by the things that make no sense, and we can be shattered, all of our illusions gone, hope can seem to die, and we do not understand. But always there is purpose. Even if we do not understand now, even if we do not understand later, always there is purpose. Only Jesus saw the real significance of it. Only he at this point understood that his role as Messiah, that his service as Son of Man was to give his life and not to be a conqueror. He bewildered them at this point by speaking of his death. We notice in verses 32 and following. John does not describe the experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now this is a good place to uh, say one more time that in the Gospel of John, over 92% of his material does not occur in the other three Gospels. John wrote last. He wrote anywhere from 20 to 40 years after the writing of the other three Gospels. He not only knew the other three Gospels, he knew the life of Christ for he had been there for every moment of it. And so as he writes, it is his design often not to repeat not to tell us things that have already been told, but to tell us things the others have not told. He doesn't describe Gethsemane, but we see in these words of Christ the inner struggle of Christ, and in the end we see that he is in triumph and not in despair. He knows what will be accomplished, that evil will be defeated, that Satan's power will be broken, that men from all over the earth will be drawn to him, and because of our love for him, they will be drawn to him through us. And the message for us is that we need to obey now. Not later, but now. There may be an easier time to obey, but there will never be a better time. For we never know the impact or the power of a moment. We never know the purpose that the Father has. We never know what may be lost if we delay even a day. 
in our good intentions. It is a law of life that we become like what we love. May it ever be with us that we will be like Him because we love Him. The voice of God was seen in the life of Jesus three times to comfort Him at His baptism, at His transfiguration, and here. William Barclay says this, What God did for Jesus, He will do for us. When He sends us out upon a road, He does not send us out without directions and without guidance. When God gives us a task, He does not leave us to do it in the lonely weakness of our own strength. He is not a silent God, and ever and again, when the strain of life is too much, when the effort of God's way is beyond our human resources, if we will listen, He will speak, and we will go on with His voice ringing in our ears and His strength surging through our frame. Our trouble is not that God does not speak, but that we do not listen. Here is an incredible and marvelous purpose revealed. And then notice in verses 37 through 43, here is the prophecy revealed. And John points out that the reaction of the crowd, and in the verses just prior to this, they were questioning him. They were picking at his statements. They were saying to him, Now you said... But the Scriptures say, and Jesus' response was simply, you had better walk by the light while you have the light. You had better listen while I speak. And John is reminded of the prophecy of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord then been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for as Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Wonders and signs, miracles and healings, even the resurrection of a dead one will not convince those who have hardened their own hearts against the voice of God. Now, remember one more time and put it into perspective that the people who were closest to this situation, whether they loved him or hated him, whether they followed him or rejected him, Every one of them were in unanimous agreement that by his command, a man dead and in the grave for four days had come to life. There is a movement in our Christian family that has as its central thesis that in the New Testament it was the signs and wonders that brought people to Christ and therefore it must be today that we will have and follow 
signs and wonders and people will be saved. Well, there's only one thing wrong with that idea as far as the scriptures are concerned. It just ain't so. Solomon said anything sounds good until you hear the other side of it. Jesus said in the parable of the two houses that a house is no better than the foundation on which it stands and that idea has no firm foundation in the scriptures. Those who will not hear and respond to the gospel when the gospel is presented and when the Holy Spirit presses the truth of the gospel to the heart will not be persuaded no matter what they see or hear. And Isaiah had prophesied that it would be so. Unbelief had rendered them unable to believe. And there is the curious statement in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Those who believed would not say so. And I think that most of us would have to admit that we know the emotion. From time to time, every one of us finds ourselves in a situation where we really don't want it to be known that we're Christians. They had an opportunity. They lost that opportunity. Never again would those rulers of the Jews have the opportunity to stand for the innocence of Jesus of Nazareth. We know by subsequent New Testament history that many of them did follow him. We know that later that week, two of them in open defiance to their colleagues went to Pilate and asked for the body that they might bury him. And though God is gracious, and though God forgives, and though they had years left of opportunity to serve him, never again did they have that opportunity. You do not ever know when that situation arises and you are aware of the hostility to the truth, you are aware of the discomfort it will be for you to identify yourself with him, you never know what may result if you simply, winsomely, lovingly, openly affirm that you belong to him. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Their hearts, those who would not hear him, their hearts were hardened. Those who were open to the voice of God were persuaded. Notice finally in verses 44 through 50, here is the promise revealed. Jesus cried out, He who believes in me 
does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. He who rejects me does not and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word which I speak is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus says to have him is to have the Father. The Jews often said to Jesus, Abraham is our father, God is our father. Jesus said to him, to them, if that were true, you would believe in me, for he sent me. It may not be popular, it isn't popular, but it is true that no one on this planet in the present or in the past has ever or will ever come to make peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. That is why the world is irretrievably hostile to the gospel. The Roman Empire was a very tolerant place to religion. They did not try to enforce one way of worship. They provided at the public expense great temples in regional centers called pantheons where every god had a little altar and a place of worship. But there was no place in the pantheon for the Jews and later for the Christians because they affirmed alike that there is one God and that there is no other way. It is not considered intellectually respectable to believe in deity in the post-Christian United States of America. It is considered far less fashionable and far more arrogant to believe that there is only one way to God. And I fear that too often we are driven by our desire for pleasant relationships with other people more than we are driven by the fact that unless they come to Jesus Christ, they're going to die and burn in an eternal hell created for Satan and his demons. Every individual that you know, everyone that you meet, is worthy of dignity and courtesy and respect. They are not the enemy. They should never be treated as an enemy. 
But never should we in any way do anything which waters down the gospel. That is not our prerogative. I have a friend who has traveled extensively with uh, a group of Jews, Christians and Jews in dialogue, trying to uh, create better relationships. And they have traveled to Europe and to the Middle East for weeks at a time, a small group of Christian leaders, a small group of Jewish leaders. And my friend had an occasion for a conversation about this very thing with one of the conservative Jewish rabbis. And he said to his Jewish friend, does it offend you that I believe that you cannot come to God except through Jesus Christ. And his very Jewish and very committed Jewish rabbi friend said, that will not offend me as long as you are not offended by the fact that I don't accept that. There are more options in our relationships with those who do not know the Lord than victory or defeat. In fact, it's not really a contest. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to have somebody else lose. We're not trying to compete. We are simply there as light in the darkness so that they may be drawn to the light and the warmth of Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus is to have God. It is the only way. And Jesus says we are accountable for what we hear. The words that he has spoken will judge us. In the Gospel of John, as we come now to the last week of his life, we have seen him as the Word of God, the Word which became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen him as the light of the world, we have seen him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have seen him as a sin offering, as water, as the way, the truth, and the life, as the bread of life, as the resurrection. And now we will see him as God. In his darkest hour, Jesus knew of the Father's presence. F.B. Meyer said this, and with this I close. There is no moment, no duty, no trial in life in which the Lord Jesus Christ is not present. You may not see him, but nevertheless, he is there. There is no furnace, but that the Son of Man treads upon the glowing coals. There is no storm, but that the master walks over the billows of the sea. There is no island of exile, but that the Lord is near the one exiled. It may be that we do not see him or hear his voice, but we must believe that he is there. We must dare to believe on the strength of 
his own assurance.